passage this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the earthly fathers that you've given us, and we thank you even more for the perfect father that you have been to us. Anoint Pastor Jeff now as he illuminates the truth revealed in your word and empower us to walk in the light of that truth as we go from here today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Well, if you have your Bible, you can open there to Romans chapter 3. We will be in the first 20 verses of that chapter today. I'm going to ask you to uh, put on your thinking caps, take a few notes, and uh, really try to track with what Paul is saying to us today, and you can track along better with the outline that's in your bulletin that we've provided for you in your bulletin. Really quickly, before I jump into the message, I just have one quick announcement that I need to make uh, regarding children's ministry volunteers. Folks, I want to thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for signing up. Thank you for filling all of these slots this summer. You guys are amazing. Give yourselves a hand. I was just kidding. Don't give yourselves a hand. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are great. I, I'm so thankful for all of you. We do have a few more slots uh, open. We just consider children's ministry in this church to be such a privilege, such a privilege to bring these little ones up in the gospel and teach them the gospel. Uh, our need really is for occasional child care volunteers. And this is to help us. We need more adults. We have plenty of teens, but we need more adults to help manage and supervise those teens. Uh, and these are for events like uh, the, um, I'm going to read them because I can't remember. <laughs> Prayer services, Bible studies, and then other things uh, like uh, worship service, special worship services, worship nights, and parents' night out, and that sort of thing. And so if you, if you can help out, you can use your communication card that's in, in your bulletin there. Just fill out your name. You can drop it in that box right by the second door on the right there. Uh, or you can get a hold of Teresa uh, Stonesiver, who is our women's director in this church. You can send her an email. Or you can get a hold of Kim Bautista, who uh, really is in charge of our nursery and preschool uh, coordination for that. So thank you. Thank you guys so much for being awesome. All right, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. What is a Jew? What is a Jew? The, the political state of Israel, national Israel today, is still struggling with that question. In 2018, Israel passed the nation-state law, which attempted to define exactly what it means to be Jewish in a Jewish state. What is it? In their census, according to their census data, nearly all Israeli Jews identified either as ultra-Orthodox, traditional, or secular. So what does it mean to be a Jew? Maybe it's ethnicity. Those who are born into the line of Abraham and, and a member of the 12 tribes of Jacob, Harry Osterer of the New York University School of Medicine found that genetic studies 
such as those conducted by Amer the American Journal of Human Genetics, found that all three predominant Jewish groups, so you have the Middle Eastern Jews, Sephardic, Ashkenazi, share genome-wide gen genetic markers that distinguish them from other worldwide populations, and that genetic marker goes at least back 2,000 years. So maybe it's, maybe it's ethnicity. Maybe these are sons of Abraham and those are the Jews. But 40% of ethnic Jews are secular and atheist. They don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Surely that's a problem. Well, maybe it's culture. So some in Israel today are trying to say, no, 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 it's not, it's not ethnicity, it's culture. There are many practicing Jews who are black, Asian, European, right? And they observe kosher dietary laws. They circumcise their children on the eighth day. They celebrate Pass, Passover and Sabbath. And those people consider themselves just as much of Jews as any ethnic Jew does. So maybe it's culture. Now Paul shockingly answered that for us last week, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. What Paul said was this. He said, here's what a true Jew is. And it was quite surprising. It was quite shocking. Now, of course, Paul thinks that there's such a thing as an ethnic Jew because he keeps making distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. You can't do that if you don't think there's any such thing as an ethnic Jew. And of course, he thinks it's culture. He mentions the law of Moses and circumcision. Of course, he thinks it can be also defined in cultural terms. But Paul adds a further dimension, a fulfilling dimension, a completing dimension. What, is his, what does it mean to be genuinely Jewish in a spiritual sense? He says in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, he says that a man is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. That person may claim an Abrahamic lineage. They may claim to possess the Torah, law, and to hear it re read to them regularly on the Sabbath in synagogue, sure. They may even presume to be a teacher of the law, to teach other sinners, you better not murder. You better not commit adultery. You better not sleep around, right? He said they may even have the physical sign of circumcision in their body, which is a physical symbol that they belong to Moses' covenant. But what he says is no. To be truly Jewish is to possess the Spirit of God, to have received God's Holy Spirit that has now circumcised us in the heart. That person who has now been set apart to God by the Spirit and by faith. And that can be Gentiles as well. So the new badge of covenant membership in this new covenant is the person who, in whom the Spirit inhabits. And so therefore, possessing the law and hearing it and attempting to obey it confers upon us no immunity on the day of judgment. So what does it mean to be a Jew? Now, he is going to anticipate in this text four objections from his countrymen. Four objections from his countrymen in verses 1 through 8. And he answers these four objections. He has no doubt heard repeatedly uh, in the synagogues and his synagogue debates with his, with his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so the first objection that he mentions here is why bother being a Jew then? If a true Jew is a person who has been inwardly circumcised in the heart, 
who has been set apart to God by the Holy Spirit in faith, including Gentiles who believe in Jesus, then what is the point in having all this Torah, law, and these statutes, and these precepts, and this history, and this claim to Abrahamic lineage? Why be a Jew? What advantage is there? He says in verse 1, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? He surprises them again. He says, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Now here, he's going to ask this question, what advantage is there in being a natural-born son of Abraham, a Jew, a practicing Jew? And here he's going to say considerable advantage with respect to our opportunity and access. So we do have an advantage when it comes to the opportunity to believe because remember what he said in chapter 1. He said, this is the gospel according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't completed at this time, so it's the gospel according to the Old Testament. So the Jew who has grown up listening to the Torah law being read to them every single Sabbath in the synagogue has the opportunity and the advantage of having access to the gospel in their Scriptures. The second objection is, isn't God unjust? Isn't God unjust? So he anticipates that his fellow Jew will say, well, then God must be unjust then to judge us because of the failings of a past generation. Isn't that unfair? Verse 3 and 4, he says, what then? If some were unfaithful. Now, when he says some were unfaithful, who is he talking about? He's talking about past generations of his countrymen who have turned to idolatry and the immorality in those idolatrous systems. That's why they ended up in the exile in Babylon. That's why they became subject to Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Now Rome. That's why these Christians are in Rome. And he says, so if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify or make void God's faithfulness? No. Of course not. Absolutely not. Let God be true and everybody else just a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. How does God triumph in judgment if he's judged us, his people? Now, he's referring to their national promise to be the people of God. This was given to Abraham. They all know it. He knows what the objection is. Has God been unfaithful to his very own, his elect people? Genesis 17, 7, it's right here. Look at it. He says, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you. This is God talking to Abraham and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. After you. Doesn't that seem pretty clear? Now, God has made a pact. God has made a contractual agreement to tell these people, I am your God. I chose you out of the nations. You're my people, and this is going to be permanent. And I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Now, the word offspring here later, what Paul is going to say to the Galatians is very simply this. Jesus is the offspring. So that word offspring is singular, not plural. In context, what he's saying is, what Paul is saying is, Jesus is the descendant who is going to reboot the people of God. He is the new Israel. And, and that's essentially what Paul is going to teach them, but they all know what the covenant says to Abraham. And the Jew would say to Paul, Paul, don't you remember Deuteronomy 28? 
You know the Bible, right? Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, God promised that we would be exalted above every nation on earth. Remember when he said that? He said he would put us in our land and keep us in our land and that we would be his special prized possession. And now Paul is saying, is God unjust then to scatter you across the nations and to leave you in a state of judgment? Is God unjust? No. Read the rest of Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 20, he says, the Lord will send, this is Moses telling them now, you the curses, confusion and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. Verses 15 through 68 outline the curses associated with the covenant. So what is Paul saying here? Listen, God has been faithful. God has been faithful to bless the world in the Jewish nation by sending the Messiah who is the blessing that he promised to Abraham to the whole world. And God has been faithful to judge us as a people with the curses and the judgments that he said would be part of our covenant. God is not unfaithful. He's true. He did what he said he would do. And here we are. And here we stand. Third objection. Isn't God unjust to condemn me in my sinful life if my sinful life ultimately brings him glory? So God now triumphs. What he says here is that even God's judgment for our unrighteousness leads to God triumphing in judgment. And he says in verse 5, he says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? Do you follow what he's saying here? The very first thing that he appeals to is he appeals to the fact that God is the just judge of the world. He says, listen, my unrighteousness highlights, it accentuates, it abounds to the glory of God. How is that so? Now understand that God alone is in the position to determine what is just and unjust. Who could sit in that chair? Who could sit in that seat? Who could could decide what is truly just and what is truly unjust? The earthbound observer the earthbound creature is not in a position to gainsay or Second guess, God's judgments. And what God has said is, listen, you're where you are because I fulfilled the promises in the covenant that if you went off into idolatry and you worshiped false gods and you descended into moral madness, there you would be. And you would receive the terms of the covenant. And God is just in his decision who can second guess his judgments. So the first thing that he does is appeal to the high and exalted judgments of God. No one is in a place to second-guess God's judgment. Paul's secondary answer, though, is that actually unrighteousness highlights or magnifies his righteousness. Listen, as a sinner, as a person whose mind is darkened in sin, who can't see the light of God in creation and who can no longer feel the light of God in conscience, in human conscience. If that's true, God has left one more witness. The third witness is sin itself. Because sin 
abounds in the human experience. The human experience is permeated with sin from coast to coast, every corner of the world. And how does sin glorify God? Because you wouldn't even be able to judge it as sin. You wouldn't even be able to judge it as wrong unless you had some notion of what the right is unless you had some notion of what moral perfection is, how can you say to another person, that murder, that theft is wrong? Because you have some notion that something else is right. And so the sin itself becomes a witness now. It becomes the third witness against us to the judgments of God. And its fourth objection, isn't the Christian faith just an anti-law religion? So all this talk about grace and forgiveness and mercy, we sing about it all the time, but aren't you just anti-law? And this title here is antinomian. The word anti means against. The word namas is the word he uses for law. So an antinomian is a person who just is against the law. And he anticipates this, verse 8. should be 3-8, not 5-8. He says, and why not say, just as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Paul condemns this accusation as pure nonsense. To prescribe a life of license in order to magnify grace is a crazy way of living or thinking. Now, he's going to more thoroughly address this in chapter 6 when we get to chapter 6, but right now he just wants to point out, listen, the Christian faith is not against the law. The Christian has the presence of the Holy Spirit living in him, and the moral law of God has been stamped on his very heart. Of course, the Christian is going to follow the word. He's going to follow God's precepts. The Christian does not deny the law. We do not fail to keep the moral law of God, but the Christian recognizes the limitations of the law. The Christian knows that the law cannot do for us what it demands of us. And he's going to mention that in verse 20. We'll get to it in a few minutes. Number two, so he addresses four possible objections by his fellow Jews. And number two, Paul addresses four problems with the human race. Now, when I say problem, I don't mean like, hey, you got a flat tire. If you got a flat tire in Puerto Vallarta, you got a problem, right? That's a problem. As we had many times when we went to Puerto Vallarta. Uh, okay, if you got a flat tire, you got a problem. But that's not what I'm talking about. When I use the word problem, I mean a cancer diagnosis. And the diagnosis is the cancer has metastasized to every system in your body. Every molecule in your body, the cancer is eating you up. So when I talk about problem, I mean a fatal problem. And so what he's going to tell us in chapter 3 is you and I as human beings, we've got a fatal problem. And it's one that we can't get ourselves out of. Okay, verse 9, he says, what then? Are we any better off? Are we any better off? Now he's talking again to his countrymen, the Jews. He's saying, are we any better off? Well, yes. We were when it comes to opportunity and access to God's word in the gospel and the Bible. But when it comes to standing before God in judgment, we are no better off. We are no better off. He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. I want to point out there's just a couple of sticky interpretational issues in this passage. 
And the first has to do with people who tend to interpret this passage, verse 9 through 18, uh, in its immediate context only. And what they would try to say is, well, since he's still just referring to the Jews, then he's not ruling out the possibility that on our own volition, of our own volition, we could know God, seek God, or be declared righteous by God. Like, we've got the willpower, and as human beings, we could do all that, right? So he's just talking to the Jews. No, no, he's talking to everybody. How do we know that? Because the context in Romans 1, 18 and following, Romans chapter 2, now Romans chapter 3, he's been building a case for the universality of sin. Everybody seems to be under this, whether you start out as a Greek or pagan idolater leading into moral insanity, or whether in chapter 2 you're a Stoic or a Jewish philosopher, a moralist, or in verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, whether you're a Torah-observant synagogue-going Jew, circumcised, it doesn't matter who you are, you belong in this category, and he's going to define it for us in verses 10 through 18. Now, so we know that's the context, but then on top of that, in verse 9, he actually tells us that that's his context. He says in verse 9, not at all, for we have already made the case, right? In other words, I have already framed this, that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So who's he talking about? Yes, all y'all. So he first has to remind them of his context, but there's a second interpretive issue in this passage that you need to take note of. And there's a raging debate here as to whether or not in this context he is actually applying this to every single person, right? Is he, when he says no one, not even one, absolutely no one, does he really mean that? Or is that just general language? I mean, typically, generally speaking, no one. <laughs> right? No. I think as we read the language, all means all. And so, he has another phrase in here that we need to just underline. If you would, just take your pen and underline this phrase. And that's the phrase, all are under sin. And what does he mean to say all are under sin? It means we're all under the power and the dominion of sin. There is not a single human being that is not under the power and the dominion of sin. Nobody, except Jesus. Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death spread to all people. Why? Because all sinned. We're going to talk about that more when we get to Romans chapter 5, but his context here is every single person who is born into the line of Adam and Eve, we have all been born into a sinful nature, and condemnation has come to all because we all sin, and death comes to all. Do all die? Yeah. I think death's track record is pretty good, right? <laughs> Romans 7, 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold as a slave under sin. Understand, Romans chapter 7 is not a description of the best possible Christian life. So if you got that on your bumper sticker, take it off. Right? What he's describing in Romans chapter 7 is not a person, not a believer who is struggling with sin. He's describing a person in the human race who is sold as a slave to sin. And in Romans 6, he says, you're no longer a slave to sin. 
And in Romans 8, he says, you shall no longer act like a slave to sin because you're not a slave to sin as a believer with the Holy Spirit. So understand that you and I have been sold in our human flesh and under the slavery of sin. John 8, 34, Jesus responded to the Pharisees. He said, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, who commits sin? Everyone. No one could claim, other than Jesus, could claim to be sinless. So truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin, everyone who lives a life of sin, becomes a slave under the power and dominion of sin. Galatians 3, 22 through 23. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith in Jesus Christ came, this message about faith in Jesus came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith was revealed. What is he saying? We have been confined to a system where we have the law, but the law cannot empower us to do what the law demands of us. And so we need desperately something more. And that, of course, is salvation by grace through faith. We're going to talk about that next week, but understand right now, all have sinned. All are under the dominion and the power, the reign of death, as he says in Romans 5. So the first problem that he mentions here in the psalm, this little patchwork of psalms that he stitches together, it's kind of a cool thing that he does here. But the first problem that he mentions that we all have is to ignore God's truth, failing to conform our thinking to it. He quotes a number of psalms here, Psalm 14 principally. So what is our first problem? We ignore God's truth, this truth that God has put out in nature that Paul says should be so evident, it's as evident as the nose on your face. It can be clearly seen in nature that the universe has a designer and that that designer must be immortal and eternal and divine, not mortal, not a person not a human being, right? And so understand that that revelation in creation, though it should be evident to all, in our sin, it's not evident because sin darkens the mind and we cannot see it as clearly as we should. He says in verse 11, there is no one who understands. Understandably, there is no one who really gets it. And there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So the first problem that we have is we really don't know God. We really can't recognize him, the revelation of God in the cosmos and human conscience anymore. And what happens is, is we don't understand what should be clearly understood from nature and then we don't follow. We don't conform our thinking to his truth and then we don't seek him. We don't seek after God, no one does. John 6, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws me, or uh, sent me draws him. So you can't even come to God unless the Father who sent Jesus draws you into the flame. A.W. Tozer once said, before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. You show me a person who's seeking God, I'll show you a person whom God is seeking. 
I'll show you a person whom God is drawing into the flame of his presence and his love. And so the first problem we have as human beings left to ourselves apart from God, apart from his work in our spirit, apart from his work in our heart to draw us to Jesus is we never would. We would never come. We would never believe. We would never choose. The second problem is that our speech then becomes toxic and our actions become godless. And so we're unrighteous in our core, in our atoms, to our bones. And then how does it reveal itself? A heart that is darkened and corrupt and depraved in sin. This is failing to seek the knowledge and understanding of God. Its result is just a vile, godless, arrogant speech. A life that just speaks arrogantly in vile terms. Issuing from a depraved and immoral heart. Verse 13, look at it. He says, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues and vipers venom is on their lips. And their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. So what, be, what happens is our, our speech just becomes poisonous, deceptive, death, toxicity, deception. And that's what the tongue is. And if you don't believe that, Man, just watch any Netflix comedy special. It's just the expression of a vile heart that has been darkened, so darkened in sin. The tongue can set your whole life on fire, on the very fire of hell. That's its power. A few years ago, I worked at a, a company called The Berkwist Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And at this company, I had a coworker, and she was hilarious. Her name was Madeline. Madeline was just this larger-than-life character. And everybody loved Madeline except for one thing. She was constantly playing pranks on everyone in the office. She was a prankster. Now, she learned the first prank that she played on me, she never did it again. And that's because... I'm a, I'm a curmudgeon. I, when it comes to pranks, I just, I'm re, I get really cranky. I get really grumpy. But so she did one prank on me, but then there was a guy that was sitting next to her, and they enjoyed it, and I couldn't understand that. And so they enjoyed uh, swapping pranks, like playing pranks on each other all the time. And so she was going away on vacation. She left for vacation, and uh, the next day we came into the office, and it, it smelled in the office like there was a, a dead squirrel or something there. And so people began to look all over going, oh, what did Madeline do? And no one could find anything. By the end of the day, it was becoming very pungent, very intolerable. By the next day, it smelled like somebody had stashed a dead human body in there. And by the next day, we were out of the office. We had to clear out of the office for the next two or three days. We had to clear out. And then the hazmat team literally came into the office to find it. She called in to see how things were going. And it turns out that what she had done, we discovered, she went to the grocery store and bought a big old cow's tongue, about a two-foot-long cow's tongue, and put it in her coworkers, her neighbor's drawer, locked it in there. But what she didn't know is that he went on vacation the same time she did. 
And so that's where that smell, that rank odor was coming from. Listen, an out-of-control tongue can mess your life up, (laughs) right? Can wreak havoc on your life. (laughs) It's true. Pastor James thought this. Like, I want to show you Pastor James' words here. James, chapter 3, 5 through 12. Many of you know this passage very well, don't you? He says, so too, the tongue is a, it's just a small part of the body, but man, it can turn your whole life. It can direct your entire life. He says, consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. I know this well by experience. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, is placed uh, among our members. It stains the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. Who can tame it, he says? Who could possibly tame the human tongue? It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and then we turn around and curse the people made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, things should not be this way. It shouldn't be that way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same source? No. The world's path is just constant, unceasing strife. And you see the sinful nature working itself out in the way they talk to each other. You see it, unceasing acrimony and dissension, relentless character assaults, memes on Facebook, Twitter, filthy jokes, tribal wars between factions, and now these tribes actually turning in and tearing themselves apart because there's no one left to attack. It's merciless and unkind. It's a system that rejects seeking the knowledge and understanding of God's revelation, and it turns to futility. It turns to a futile, worthless way of thinking and living. And what James says is, listen, your tongue can set your whole life on fire. It shouldn't be this way. It just shouldn't be this way between us. Third problem, we live without a glorious sense of fear. A glorious sense of fear. We live in a culture, verse 18, where there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a very interesting way to put it, isn't it? Having the fear of God before your eyes. And I think that just means having a perspective on the world. Everything you see in the world, you see it through the lenses of fearing God. And the Bible talks about the fear of God in two different ways. Now, in one sense, it's a sanctified sense of panic. Have you ever had sanctified panic? It's a holy panic that shoots right through the worshiper at the grandeur and the majesty and the power of an awesome God. And we express this awe and wonder. We call it awe and wonder or awestruck wonder. But there's another side to godly fear. It's not just awe and wonder. It's not just admiration from afar. The way you feel when you look at a beautiful, gorgeous mountain range from the base. Or the way that you admire the power of a raging river from the banks. Do not merely mistake fear as 
admiration for God, for his awesome glory. No, it is the panic-inducing moment when you realize that you have engaged the mountain and are attempting to summit its heights, and the mountain that you're summiting can kill you. It's the moment you realize that you have this rapturous sense of anxiety, this panic, knowing that the class five rapids you used to admire from the banks, you're in them, and you're paddling for your life, and you love it. You enjoy it, but that river can kill you. Jesus said, do not just fear the people who could kill your body. He said, fear the one who could kill your body and after killing it can put your soul in hell. You and I have a holy, awesome admiration for God, but we also know that we are going to stand and give an account for our lives, the lives lived in the body according to this gospel. So we got a problem. The fourth problem. The law takes the witness stand against us. Great. <laughs> right? You ever had that one friend, and then like all your friends turn against you, and you're like, well, at least I got that one friend, and then you find out that friend is against you too? I mean, for heaven's sake, at least we had one ally in this fight, in our dilemma, but no, he says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. Now, who are, who's subject to the law? All of us, According to Romans 1, it's the moralist who has the moral law of God written on the heart, and it's the religious observant Jew who has the moral law of God written in Torah and written on the tablets. So we've all got at least that much law, and we're subject to it, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Again, God is the only one in the position who can pass judgment on our lives. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Think about that for a second. Think about what the law does. Now, over in chapter 7, when we get there, what we'll find out is Paul says this. Listen, as a Torah-observant Jew, as a good rabbi, I wouldn't have known that coveting was a bad thing unless the moral law of God in my heart and the written law in the Ten Commandments said, do not covet. Thou shalt not covet. And then what does he say? He says, as soon as I heard that law, I went out and coveted. Because what the law did is it made me want it. It showed me where the line was, and I immediately jumped over it. Isn't that human nature? How many of you have boys? Oh, you know this is true, don't you? If you say to the boy, hey, don't push that button. He will push that button. He may stand there and wring his hands, but he cannot wait to push that button. This happened with Hayden when my second boy, Hayden, is 18 now, but when he was really little, I mean like four, three or four, right? He would love to come out to my garage and help me with projects. He didn't really help, but I just loved having him there. And he just loved working with tools and touching stuff, and he wanted to touch everything in there. And I had this set of kind of exacto knives and knives, and I used to do a little bit of word, woodworking, you know, a little bit. And, uh, and I took that set of knives and put them up on the top shelf in my garage so he couldn't reach them because I knew he loved those knives. And I saw him saw, watch me do it. Like, he saw me do it, and I saw that he saw that. Okay, you know, so... So I looked at him, I said, boy, don't you even think about getting up there and getting them knives. He goes, okay, daddy. 
No kidding, I'm sitting in the living room, I'm working on my computer, and I'm just working away, and Tyler's sitting right here next to me. And I see out of the corner of my eye, he comes through the garage door, and in the entryway of the house, he's got something in his hand, and he's going, shh, 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 right? And so I look up, and he has one of the X-Acto knives, one of my X-Acto knives, that blade is all the way retracted, and he's just swishing it around. And before I could get up and grab it from him, Tyler just bounces off of the couch and goes, oh, no, Teddy, he's got a knife. And he grabs the knife and pulls it out of his hand and cut him from here to here. And he had to have surgery to, to repair all of his tendons. And then to keep his tendons in place, he had a cast on, and they sewed a little button right there on his finger. And he just couldn't help. <laughs> he just couldn't help himself. This is the way we are. We hear the law. We heard the rule. But there's just something in our sinful nature at the molecular level. We have just this metabolic urge to break that law. So the law, which should be helping us now, doesn't have the power to help us to do the thing that it requires us to do in all of its glory. So it takes the witness stand against us and it actually accuses us on the day of judgment. Now the law may slow or put the brakes on my descent into debauchery or moral insanity, but ultimately it just gives me lots of buttons to push. Ultimately it gives me lots of lines to cross. Lots of barriers I can't wait to scale and Rules I can't wait to break. So no one, Paul says, stands righteous before God. For we are all under the power and imprisonment of sin apart from Christ. And we have all failed to seek after the knowledge of God. No one seeks him, not even one. You show me a person who is seeking the Lord, I'll show you a person in whom the Lord is seeking. And the depraved and corrupted heart spews Forth, gushes forth vile, toxic speech rather than the praises of God we were meant to do. And sin robs us of the opportunity to live in the glorious presence of God, having a holy, righteous fear of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Let's pray today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. God, we learn today that this spiritual, good, beautiful, amazing law, these moral decrees that you have issued toward us, these obligations that you would have us live up to is not actually our ally in the fight. Instead, we are so depraved and sinful at the atomic level, we can't escape it. And we confess it to you today, God. We confess that every inclination of our flesh, every desire of our hearts is geared towards sin and selfishness and self-indulgence. We confess that we have not lived up to your righteous glory. We confess that sin has robbed us of a life of awestruck wonder and fear of a powerful God. And God, we confess that apart from Christ, apart from you today, apart from what you've done for us on the cross, taking our penalty 
and dying for our sins and rising to life to defeat death. Apart from trusting in that message, Lord, we will go to oblivion in judgment for sin. We thank you today, Lord, that you have provided a way of escape, a way of rescue, a way of salvation. And if you're here today, you don't have to wait to the rest of the story next week. You can respond in your heart right now to trust in Christ, trust in Jesus. He's the only one that can get you there. You can't get yourself there. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you.